This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Russell, and today we have the returns of two uh, legendary old-timers, not just of a bit of culture, but of Malaysian culture in general. We have, he is a writer, he is a director, he is an actor, he is Na'a Murad. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Uh, great to have you. And also, after a very long absence, because he didn't know how to work Zoom, but <laughs> a young person has set it up for him, uh, he is the head honcho at Pusaka, and he does many other things, which he's going to tell us. He is Edin Koo. Uh, good to be back, uh, Cam. It's great to have you. And Edin, just very quickly, how would you describe yourself? I'm a writer. You're a writer. Okay. So anyway, our three topics today are... Chilies, where they came from and where they've been to. Topic number two is sleep paralysis in culture. And finally, topic number three is uh, language and nationality. So with topic number one, I like chilies. Do you two like chili? I like, I like pickled green chilies. Mm-hmm. The chili jeruk you get with uh, mihun sometimes. I, I like that. Uh, Edin, are you a chili? Yeah, I, I love uh, deep fried chilies, but not any other kind of chili. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, mm. uh, well, I like all sorts of chili, not too hot. But um, I've always been fascinated by chili because, you know, when, when I travel, it's fun to travel. But after a couple of days, it's like, I just got to have some chili. I need some chili, some, some, some excitement in the food. And I've always been fascinated by the places where you can find chili and where you cannot. So chili has been domesticated in Central America for about 6,500 years. That's a very long time. Was it difficult? Did they have to, to catch herds of chilies and domesticate <laughs> them via the whip and stick? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and then, so when Europeans arrived, um, the chili took off on principally Portuguese trade routes. Not Spanish per se, but Portuguese. So you find chili in places like, for instance, uh, the, the, the classic Portuguese enclave of Goa, in India, uh, is the home of vindaloo, which is the fiery hot dish. Pork vindaloo is actually the, the most famous vindaloo. Um, and then you'd find it in places like Peninsula here, Peninsula Malaysia. But you don't find it so much in the Philippines. In the Philippines, I've, I personally anyway, I've come encountered chili, but it's not like a really big deal in the palate. Whereas it's moved to places like uh, Thailand, Vietnam, up the coast, up those trade routes. But kind of anomalies also to Nepal, way up there in the Himalayas. It managed to travel there. It has taken over India. But it's, it's interesting to me how there are also places where you don't find it. Like, so in China, I had, um, I, was, I was in China for quite some time, and the food, yeah, it's nice enough, but after a while it gets a bit boring. And so I was taken to Sichuan Hot Pot, and I thought, oh, my God, how exciting. It's full of chili. But then when you eat it, I had to sort of send it back and say, I'm sorry, but your chili is broken. Uh, it's, it's not working. Do it again. But they prefer the pepper. So I, I'm just wondering, uh, yeah. I, I mean, in Portugal itself, I didn't really find chili in Portuguese food. So I wonder, you two, in your travels and your experience, have you found chili in places and not in other places? Edin? Yeah, well, I think it's also the way chili is prepared. Uh, so, uh, for example, you know, in our parts of the world, it's, it's pretty raw, right? It's, it's there. Um, but in other places like Sichuan, in the Philippines, definitely, they have all kinds of 
kind of uh, um, vinegar mixed with chili, things like that. So uh, it's not the kind of chili you eat, but it's definitely found itself there. Uh, of course, if you go to rural Wales, uh, you're not going to find much chili in that part. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the way the Sichuan people prepare it, for example, it's different. It, it all falls back on the palate, la brother. Yeah, no, I know. But it's also, I, I just think that it's an interesting way to look at how trade networks have worked. So, mm. for instance, Na, you've spent quite a bit of time in South Africa. Now, Chile yes. likes water. Uh, but have, did you encounter, I know that South African Malays like to create a dish called sambal. Yeah, but but it's it's kind of different. I think the, the Indonesian indentured, uh, workers probably brought the chili over to, to South Africa, but it wasn't prevalent. Um, you had a lot of good Indian food, but I think other than that, chilies were not a main thing in, in South Africa. Um, not, not that I, I noticed. And strangely enough, we were talking about the Portuguese, that you'd think that the Portuguese were quite, were one of the first to open uh, contact with, with the Japanese, and yet, you know, chili is not a really big thing in Japan either. I suppose it depends on what you bring with you. The Portuguese were bringing Christianity, I suppose, rather than food. So um, it never took root in Japan either. I mean, like. Well, the Portuguese did take to Japan food deep fried in batter. So from fish and chips to uh, tempura that, and, and uh, you know, deep fried banana fritters here, it's all Portuguese. Mm-hmm. But I must say that in my travels, um, you go back to the sauce. I, I remember as, as a student one time, uh, Los Angeles. Um, I would try Mexican food for, for the first time, real Mexican food for the first time. And I would think that, oh, I'll be able to take the, the hottest chilies. No problem. I'm Malaysian. Forgetting that that's, that's the, the oh. origin of the chilies in the South America. So I, incredibly hot, Cam. I, I, I couldn't deal with it. I was like trying to be cool at first. I, yeah, I can take it. And just not being able to finish the hottest Mexican dishes. Yeah, same here. I mean, you talk about palate, Edin. Um, there are degrees. Uh, yeah, I've encou- have you encountered stuff you just can't handle? Uh, yeah, quite often. Um, but you know, I come from a families a family where my uncles would eat raw chilies and just like that, raw red chilies and red chilies is really quite mad. Uh, but you know, one of the things that always preoccupied me on the question of chilies is what was our food like before the coming of chili? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just pepper. Everything was peppery and. Yeah, I think a lot of it was kind of uh, roasted and. Uh, they ate a lot of ulam and things like that, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm. um, but it's always preoccupied me, that question. I, I, actually, I think that I've kind of experienced it. On the East Coast, it would be fish, uh, yeah. ulam, rice, yeah. mm-hmm. and budu. Yeah. But budu has a very strong chili base, budu. Yeah, it has a chili base, but the chili isn't like the most important. It's the, the, the sourness. Is mm-hmm. yes, I can imagine like Minangkabau food must have been just gulai lemak and it was just lemak but not hot at once upon yeah. a time. That, that must have been the, the thing people just like lemak food, yeah, because uh, coconut is from here, yeah, coconut is plentiful, but you know. so you know, coconut would have been in everything, everything, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, the hottest chili I ever had was in Tasmania. It was not Tasmanian chili. It, it was in a Vietnamese restaurant. And I, I thought, like Na'a was saying, I thought, oh, finally some chili. I can have no problem. And it was just like the tiniest little bit and it just burnt a hole through my tongue. And it was too much. But the hottest food in general is Sri Lankan. You think so? Quite mild, Sri Lankan. Well, Sri Lankan Tamil is quite, quite intense. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I find that Carolan food can be quite hot too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if they're... Is there a machismo in eating? Is it a macho thing? Or is it purely just taste? 
I think there's a dimension of machismo, huh? uh, but I think it's developed over time. Uh, but I, what is it? It what is it about um, uh, the palates, the natural palates of uh, places where chili has really taken root that allows itself to want something so hot? Mm-hmm. I also believe it's something to do with the sensitivity of people's palates. I think yeah. a lot of people perhaps they, their palates they need something to wake mm. wake their taste buds up. Yeah, and maybe people who are very sensitive palate, very subtle palate, don't need that much of a push. Well, chili, chili does also perhaps have a slight uh, preservative quality for the food in its um, in its chemistry. Yeah. Um, well, we I got, okay. We're going to move on though, and um, and I feel like I want to eat some chili after that. But uh, we we <laughs> we move on to topic number two, and I hope at the end of this one, I don't want to experience this topic: uh, sleep paralysis. Nah. Yes, sleep paralysis. I, I, I'm not going to linger too much on the science of it because it, it can get boring, but more on, on the cultural, mythical aspect of it. A lot of people have heard of sleep paralysis by now, and it, it's become quite an interesting topic. Um, it's been used in movies and things like that. But um, basically, when you sleep, and especially when you get to REM sleep, REM sleep, nothing to do with the band, um, your mind, your brain tricks your body into becoming paralyzed so that because you have incredibly realistic dreams at that point and it wouldn't do for you to be your body to be mimicking everything that you do in your dreams then you'll be running and thrashing and tossing and turning and speaking and shouting so you are put in a form of paralysis Um, but strangely enough the brain being an imperfect computer that, that sometimes there are glitches and when that happens you are not in REM sleep anymore, REM sleep anymore. You are about to wake up, but the sleep paralysis mechanism is still very strong in your body. So what happens is you're, you're partially awake and suddenly you are um, aware that you can't move, you can't speak, you think you, you see the room around you because you're quite awake and you, you're familiar with your room, but your eyes are probably still closed. And then your mind takes over. and um, this is the beginnings of uh, basically a phenomenon that, that's worldwide. It's been going on for thousands of years where people connect that sleep paralysis problem of being partially awake yet unable to move with all kinds of mythical and mystical uh, explanations. I mean, if I go through the list, it would take forever. That Practically every country has a reason for it, either a demon, witches, jinns, um, uh, black magic being, being, you know, like shot your way. And because of the belief in it, that is exactly what your dream illustrates. In Japan, for example, and in the Philippines, it's so specific that when people have sleep paralysis, unless they're very unsuperstitious and very modern, they will imagine the same demon or spirit. And it becomes a very believable thing. Now, in my childhood, when I was a teenager, I was told that as a Malay Muslim boy, that eventually, just before puberty, a jinn or an angel will sit on your chest. You won't be able to move. You'll be awake, but you can't move. And the thing to do is to much up, which is to profess your Muslimness or some other prayers. And then the angel will be satisfied and leave. If it's a jinn and a bad jinn, it will leave because he goes, oh, you're a Muslim. I can't mess with you. And that's become the Malay, at least Malaysian Malay explanation for sleep paralysis. And the funny thing is when you go to America in the 80s and the 90s, when they did further research um, on alien abductions, they found that a huge amount, maybe 80 to 90% of the 
of the cases of alien abduction, which is very similar to sleep paralysis. They are in bed, they can't move, they see a light, something picks them up, takes them to a spaceship and everything. And the same thing of not being able to move. And it's funny that in the 80s and the 90s, there's not enough superstitious thought in, in the general American public. So it moves on to something else that people believe are and afraid of, mm. which is alien abductions, UFOs, and things like that. So it, it changes from culture to culture. And the funny thing about me is, um, even though when I was younger, and I used to have, you know, every maybe once or twice a year, these moments of street polarities. And back then, I was a believer in, 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 in the paranormal. I mean, you name it. Loch Ness Monster, um, UFOs, poltergeists, whatever, I believed in that stuff. But whenever I had sleep paralysis, it was kind of boring. I would just hear, um, I would try to wake up and I can't. And they'll be like, I could hear people talking and stuff like that. And I'll be like, uh, and sometimes they'll be talking about me. And I'll be like, I'm here, I'm here, I want to wake up, but I can't wake up. Mm. So I never had those supernatural things. I never had a gin sit in my chest. None of that. So I felt kind of like maybe my brain was... Um, unable to process the whole superstition thing. But it's also the opposite, Ken, where your, your sleep paralysis fails, where you are asleep, and, and instead of you are still paralyzed, the paralysis stops, but you're still slightly asleep. Uh, back in the day, um, during the holidays, my family, we, all the kids would be put in one room, and I don't know why, how we had so many mattresses, but we all sleep in a row of mattresses. And one, one uh, middle of the night, I was dreaming that I was fighting with somebody, with a friend, a school friend, and I punched out. And the moment I punched out, I realized that I had just punched my brother who was sleeping right next to me. And I was awake at that moment, just at the moment when I realized that, that I was punching in my dreams. And he turned around and he hit me. <laughs> I mean, did, as, as you both know, it was not, it's not um, a poster boy for, for macho-ness and stuff, but he hit me really hard. And I pretended that I was asleep because I was like so embarrassed that I did such a stupid thing. Can I ask though? Can I ask though? So I think that's a pretty good description. But you've never, you've never had that experience. Ken? Well, you know, I have, I have, long time ago. But Edin, I mean, have you come across uh, sleep night? Well, nightmare. It's a nightmare, isn't it? A nightmare mythologies. Yeah, it's a nightmare myth, but also connected. But but you know, coming from your mixed um, cultural background, Edin, have you heard of any alternative explanations for it? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, we, we've had so many stories la, about, about sleep paralysis. I, I'm a terrible sleeper. I also find uh, sleep one of the most mysterious aspects of, of, of human life, uh, uh, only because I struggle with it all the time. I, and, um, you know, it, it requires so much training, almost some kind of yogic discipline uh, for me to understand what sleep actually is and, and how it should be done. So I do this Kali Mudra thing these days uh, late at night, which is to just completely uh, neutralize your body uh, before you go to sleep. Uh, terrible insomnia, uh, sleep paralysis, not so much. But, uh, you know, I have dreams that are just uh, too real. I don't react, but in my head, they're very real. And, and, and they translate into the next day. You know, they, they definitely affect my mood and uh, uh, my sense of anxiety and, and, and so on. But... Um, uh, yeah, I, I like to believe, uh, I hope you still believe in the in the jambalangs and so on that were fed you early on, uh, Na'ai, because uh, <laughs> it's absolutely essential that we hold on to those things and not be too rationalist because so our metaphorical dimensions continue to remain open and full of possibility. Yeah, but Edin, what about the new mythologies of aliens? Uh, that That's cool as well then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfectly uh, fine. Really? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, whatever, whatever you fear, people will be having sleep paralysis, and next thing you know, there will be, you know, 
they won't, they can't get up and somebody's about to turn on a live feed, Russians, yeah, a live feed of the parliament. And you're like, no, I got to leave before this live feed of the parliament. No, no. <laughs> I'm no general assembly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I mean, in Europe, I, I know, I, I mean, I, I have had sleep paralysis, but I think that it was, um, I feel like it was a kind of a puberty thing it happened a lot then. I don't know if I've had it so much since. But um, in European mythology, there is very much the, the, the little devil, the little demon sitting on your chest. As Goya puts it. Yeah. yeah. Was it yeah. Goya? The, There's the, the, a very famous yeah, painting Goya. by Goya. And so it's holding you down and you're unable to move. And yeah, and I think that many, I, I, you know, you say alien abductions. I think that many crazy things that crazy people have told to uh, credulous people have actually been stories told because they experienced it in a moment of sleep paralysis. Yeah, because it seems very real. Apparently, when you, you are in REM sleep, and I think we, we vaguely remember this, your dreams can be extremely, extremely realistic, even if it's, if it's something you, you partially believe in. I had a friend recently, somebody that we both know, Cam, who, who, did, a, who did some work in, in, in Genting Highlands, and Genting Highlands, of course, has a bad reputation for being, yeah. for, for being very haunted. So, so he had the full-on, you know, like, like woman with white hair and screeching in the works. And he's not even really a believer. But, well, you know, as most of us are, we, we try, not to, try not to be uh, hobbled by, by, by the, the whole Asian superstitious thing. But it's always there in the back of my mind. And he went through the whole, whole thing. It was like, and I kept telling him, it's sleep paralysis, man. <laughs> you know? Well, I thought it was forty-eight hours straight at the um, at the tables. Uh, <laughs> oh, maybe it's real. That, that would be a nice. Or maybe thing. it's real. Oh, Edin, you're 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 a funny mixture of the the. You know, sleep is sleep is. Uh, we know why we are so drawn uh, to interrogating sleep. It's because it's our closest intimation to death. No. I think also in a pre-television, pre-cinema age, it was the most exciting thing. A dream would be the most epic, exciting experience you could have in life. Yeah. It could also be like, for example, a lot of people, a lot of uh, cultures believe that dreams are part of your life. It's like a, a, a mm. different life you have where you're learning different things. Yeah. And apparently that's what, that's what they, uh, they found out. They did tests on, on mice. Uh, three, three, three groups. Mice, yes. Okay, I'm interested no to see dreams, where this goes. <laughs> no dreams, uh, regular dreams and extra dreams. And they would, they would, the, all the mice were going through the, your typical maze test, right? And the ones who got more dreams because of the chemicals that they were giving passed the tests faster. So they believe that dreams, in a way, puts you through situations that in your life where you hopefully will learn from it. And you know, we, our brains are so complex. But maybe for a mouse, when they go to sleep, they just dream of what they did during the day, yeah. running a maze. You know, again and again and again, to the point that the next day they are better at the maze than the others who don't dream. Yeah. Well, uh, dreams themselves is a whole different topic, but um, we must move on. And I'm just wondering, though, the, the mice that you're talking about, how do they know the, if they had dreams or not? Are these the mice that work in um, Disneyland? Are they they're getting those mice? <laughs> it's the chemicals that they gave. A certain kind of chemical would stop them, would put them into such a deep sleep that they, don't, they go past REM. It's almost like, okay. you know, um, anesthesia. And the other one is that, 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 that stimulates REM sleep. Well, I wonder what a mouse dream is like. So uh, we're going to move on. And in a moment, after a short break, we're going to be talking about language and nationality, or na nationalism, sorry, uh, here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Rasla, Na'a Murad, and Edin Koo. And now, Edin, uh, language and nationality. Yeah, well, uh, this has been preoccupying me, obviously, because... Uh, we have decided that 
uh, we will use the Malay language in all official uh, settings uh, abroad. Uh, this is quite a departure from the way things have been since the country achieved its uh, independence. Uh, and I am uh, very drawn to the rationale behind this, which is uh, basically we want to elevate the Malay language, which is lingua franca of this region. And uh, uh, so all our communique will be done in uh, Bahasa Melayu. Uh, I, of course, have no problem uh, with wanting to elevate or, you know, uh, basically uh, enhance the use of the Malay language. Um, but uh, I'm just uh, wondering uh, about the sincerity of this, about whether it really is a matter of elevating the national language or whether it's just about whether this administration has the competency to uh, conduct all its business in the English language, which raises other questions, very important questions about uh, what Malaysia is in essence. Um, I, uh, As I said earlier, I'm uh, all for um, the use of the Malay language in as widely a way as possible, but I think it's very dangerous when a language is then uh, hooked on to the destiny, future, you know, uh, existence of a national identity or a national consciousness. Um, so one is really looking at what the utilitarian goal of this is. And when you talk about elevating the Malay language, what do you actually mean? Uh, and how far have we come or, or, or in, the, in the course of uh, 64 years of independence to really empowering the Malay language in the most uh, um, meaningful ways? Uh, a lot of it has actually been left to rhetoric uh, we stir ethnic uh, emotions uh, by using language. Uh, and when actually Malaysia should uh, be expressing and manifesting what it is in essence, uh, which is that all Malaysians should at least be trilingual. Uh, and uh, I've also uh, looked back on a lot of our uh, role in the region and in the world uh, diplomatically. I think our ability to be so uh, fluent and, and to facilitate uh, things in the English language has helped this small country of about 33 million people to punch way above its weight. And whether we are doing, uh, 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 what, what will happen essentially to the future of multilingualism when you are falling back uh, on policies like this uh, as a result of um, really an inability to put multilingualism uh, into action. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. It, it, it is almost, uh, I, I don't want to put it in any, any terms that, that, that's rude, but it's uh, simplifying things uh, that, things which frighten a lot of people. I think a lot of people are afraid that not being good at the English language makes them somehow inadequate. But instead of then saying that, okay, then the English language should be uh, not to focused on, but should be given more of a, alongside all the other languages in the country. But instead, it's, it's taking the easy route in saying, let's, let's forget English language. It's not important anymore. Don't worry about it. Don't be scared. That, you know? and, and to me, it's, it's a reductive move. Lah. You know? it, it really is. But also, to me, it's, it's also like what is being said. Um, when you look at it on the face value, it's about Malaysian politician, Malaysian diplomats speaking in Malay, writing in Malay. It depends on what's being said also. Just because it's in Malay doesn't mean that, you know, you might still get, oh, we all should drink swam in order to, you, you know, you, the, the level of what's being said or being, being uh, written is the, the final proof. La. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would imagine, though, that uh, a voting bloc that could only speak BM would be 
enough to win you general election after general election. I don't think you need an English language speaking demographic at all in order to control power. But if you, in, in, in the Valley of the Blind, are the one-eyed man, if you can corral and hold on to uh, the English language, or at least send your kids off to get educated in that language, then you can be the interpreter for that block. <clears throat> and so you um, would make yourself useful. Sorry, I cannot agree because I think, you know... No, I'm not, say I'm not saying, you know, it's a good thing. I'm saying both... But uh, that's is... what they, they, they think. Yeah. Uh, that's what they think. But, you know, one of the very interesting things is that the, the great disconnect uh, between uh, what is desired and what is uh, uh, sought after at the ground level is not being expressed in, in policy making. Uh, I think there are many people who hold the Malay language very dear to themselves and to their hearts, and this includes me. Uh, as you know, I translate a great deal into Malay and from Malay. Um, but uh, national policy has not served the Malay language well. Uh, now I made a good point just now about writing communiques you know, uh, let alone not being able to write communiques in English proficiently, they cannot even write communiques in Malay proficiently. Yes, I've seen it again and again. Yeah. And so much essentially of the uh, innovation of the Malay language has actually happened as a result of national policy. Uh, let me take you back to when the Dewan Bahasa was uh, launched in 1955, essentially to elevate the Malay language. A lot of people don't know this. The first book that was published by the Dewan Bahasa and Pustaka in 1955 uh, was not a book in the original Malay. It was a translation of Mark Twain's novel, The Prince and the Pauper. Yeah, that was uh, translated by uh, uh, Zaba, who's of course the great figurehead of the Malay language. And in his speech there, he didn't talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, elevating the Malay language to this and that uh, for sake of politics or for the sake of of you know, uh, uh, national pride and things like that. He talked about the need of the Malay language, which of course was a cosmopolitan language, is a global language, but as a result of colonialism and so on, has not been in touch with uh, you know, uh, evolved uh, learning and knowledge. And so the first task of, of, of Malay language protagonists was essentially translation, uh, because the Malay language had to once again interact uh, with the leading languages of the world. I mean, these are all things that have been forgotten and essentially the destiny of the Malay language now uh, is in the fate of this uh, exploitative few uh, who want to whip up sentiment that isn't even there. Uh, very interesting uh, data that has been collected is that, you know, uh, learning English is almost a given to most Malays <laughs> and to most people here. To learn English is almost a given, must be done. But uh, people fail to realize that one of the of the greatest uh, one 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 of the of the highest demands uh, and uh, desires among students Malay Malay students in particular is to learn Mandarin. Mm -hmm. uh, so you see the number of students uh, going into Chinese school Malay students going to Chinese school is is growing by the year by two percent uh, one to two percent uh, and this uh, again is the disconnect la, because I think uh, on the ground people are very aware of. And, and still really quite worldly, uh, but uh, so much of policy is being set by very insulated and uh, uh, small-minded opinion. Yeah, in uh, India, um, English is one of many languages that are approved in parliament. Um, it's considered an Indian language, 
Um, I guess Hindi is officially the national. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, no. Hindi and English have the same status, and then you have seventy other officially recognized languages. Wow, all of which can be spoken in Parliament. All of which can be spoken in Parliament. I must add here that I think you know one of the major problems that this issue can crop up over and over again is the fact that you know there is also a, a, a very heavy colonial attitude that presses down on us uh, because the claim that the Malay language is not as widely spoken or appreciated is also true uh, by a lot of people who go through you know form five education and then after two three years in in uh, studying law or whatever come back and say my Malay not terribly good and things like that you know so we have that part of the lumpen bourgeois class that only creates uh, <laughs> a greater room for, for people to exploit uh, this kind of issue. I, I think the speaking of, of English is, you know, you go to countries like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, and of course, the other thing about making Malay uh, uh, recognized as a leading language of the world is that uh, the rest of the world has to actually acknowledge it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You can't force it down their necks. You Precisely. Know. <laughs> you know, they, they acknowledge Indonesian, uh, they acknowledge uh, a Thai and Vietnamese, but we have got so used to being so proficient in English you know, Malay doesn't actually click. Um, so uh, that's going to be a, a, a struggle. We'll see <laughs> how, yeah. how they come through. But in many of these countries where where a, a national language is very widely spoken, taken root, it's in all official business and so on, like Indonesia, the learning of English is greatly emphasized. And there are very few Indonesian um, uh, politicians and uh, um, ministers and so on, people at that at the administrative level who don't speak English incredibly well. No, absolutely. And there's no downside to knowing English, which which raises the question again: What is this actually for? I think uh, we know for a fact that uh, uh, everyone from the civil service, our diplomatic service, and the administration today is struggling with conducting business in English. So, if that's the reason, then I think uh, you know it has to be interrogated a lot more deeply, and we have to be a bit more honest, lah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, there you have it, folks. I hope you I hope you're paying attention. Perhaps there'll be more jobs for people who can speak English now, so interpreters. <laughs> Everywhere they go. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But please, Malaysians, la, you know, improve on your Bahasa Melayu. Uh, after so much education, you still cannot speak Malay. It's disgraceful. But it's also yeah. the abbreviation, which I find very annoying when, when it's written BM. All the acronyms, yeah? Yeah, the acronyms, the short forms and all that. And, and also even the grammar. Yeah, and, and let's not even go into SMS and WhatsApp kind of Bahasa Melayu. I just don't understand it at all. So that's the ultimate, yeah. Yeah. I'm often haunted by a phrase that uh, there was an actor who's talking, an American actor who's talking about his parents who immigrated to America from Russia, and uh, and saying like with so many immigrants, he was saying that they were illiterate in two languages, mm. and he he felt sorry for his own parents. Uh, so you know that that would be the worst of situations. Not that I can speak with any authority here. My behalf is terrible. Exactly. Yeah. Better come no, for really, classes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it comes it come, may comes a shock to you. No. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't be so flippant about it. Anyway, so we move on though to the final part of the show. Uh, recommendations. We recommend something that we think might be of interest. I go first. Um, a kind of inspiration for for my topic. I, I like to know about ingredients and where I go when I go abroad, especially to eat or locally. I'm fascinated by the ingredients themselves. And in Asian food, the ingredients are put together in such a way that it's there's an alchemy that, that just, it's confounding. And so there was a documentary that came out, documentary series, it's on Netflix, it's called High on the Hog. And it's about the history of 
African-American food. And uh, I'd always been fascinated because I've, I've done a lot of reading on the American Civil War and I kept asking myself the question, what did the slaves eat? Because <laughs> if you know what people ate, then you could understand more about their impulses and their decision-making. And, uh, and so this is all about that. And it's uh, absolutely fascinating. So, for instance, they, they took with them two of the Americas, uh, West African food like uh, bindi or ladies' fingers, yams, rice, um, things which are in some ways staples now of the, of the American diet. Um, so, yeah, High on the Hog is really good. Very interesting documentary series. Uh, Naa, what's your recommendation? Well, I, I suppose mine is connected to what I was talking about. Um, it, there's a book by Carl Sagan, which I think is about 30 or maybe 40 years old, called The Demon Haunted World. Mm. Now, I would recommend it to a lot of people who maybe struggle with the duality of being a modern person who believes in evidence and science, but also somebody who's fascinated by the unknown and the mysterious in this universe. You don't want to abandon it completely, because, you know, completely, you know, like... Um, uh, Based your, your entire life is just based on evidence and there's no sense of wonder or sense of, of mystery. And, it, and it's great because what it does is it talks about all the superstitions, all the, of, of, of everything, everything from UFOs to, to even religions and everything, and how to, to see these things from a more grounded perspective. And that, that's all it is. That's all the demon-haunted world is. And it's not... It doesn't use, you know, um, difficult language or anything. It's very easy to follow. And at the end of it, you may feel a little bit freer about whatever fears you have about the unknown. And uh, it does it without saying that, you know, unlike some books which, which says you have to be an atheist. You have to be hardcore, you know. Um, Richard Dawkins you're talking about. Richard Dawkins, Occam's <laughs> razor-wielding, you know, um, mm. uh, hardliner to live a more informed life about, about reality. And it's called The Demon Haunted World. It's a very, very good book. It's very, I mean, he talks about himself a lot. He uses himself as a, as a, as a judge too. Yeah. My, my eyes instantly, because my, the book, my copy is somewhere over here of The Demon Haunted World. He's an exceptional communicator, science communicator. He Carl is, Sagan. actually, yeah. While you're at it, um, Dragons of Eden, a lot of his books are amazing. And his Cosmos, his TV program. Cosmos. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Still stands. Well, Demon Haunted World, Carl Sagan. Hey, uh, Edin, I mean, this is, you know, you you don't like that kind of thing, surely, don't you? Yeah. No, I love Carl Sagan. He's very, very, uh, I think, uh, a very important negotiator of these two spaces. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a very irritating man, uh, yeah. I must say, dogmatic and authoritarian. Yeah. Uh, but my recommendation has something to do with language. It's one of the best books I've read, uh, not just in a very long time, but I think ever. Uh, but I'll start off with the issue of language because it's written in one language, not been allowed to be published in that language. And so the first publication of this book uh, is in the English language. And this is 1,000 Years of Joys and Sorrows uh, by the artist Ai Weiwei. Hmm. Uh, uh, it's, it's just really a beautifully written, uh, very painful uh, look back on his family uh, on uh, China over the past thousand years and negotiates in very skillful and, um, and uh, uh, poetic ways, very deep questions on, on freedom and history and revolution. Uh, and of course, it, it's an exploration of his father, Ai Ching, who was one of the great uh, founders of the Chinese modernist poetic movement. 
a very close friend of Mao Zedong, who was eventually also uh, banished, fell out of favor, banished uh, to the Gobi Desert. Uh, just just incredibly uh, marvelous. And in the way, I think, uh, as I've been reading the book, this is my third reading of it, and I've been giving out copies uh, to everybody uh, who wants one. So Cam and Naa, if you want to see, yes. get a copy, come and see me. Uh, really, really, really marvelous. Uh, but I've also been thinking about what it must feel like to have the first publication of this very intimate uh, book uh, done in a translated language rather than the language in which it was spoken and, and, and written. Uh, uh, so um, it really it does capture all kinds of uh, paradox. Has it been published in Chinese since? Uh, not, not yet. Not uh, yet? But, yeah, not yet. Because or- Hong Kong is no longer the, yeah. the bastion of the soul. Yeah, and I think uh, it can't be done in Taiwan without Ai Weiwei offending the authorities even more. Right. But you know what? What? Uh, what? I, I've signed an inscription to all these books I've given about. In Muslim tradition, uh, it is believed that uh, at the end of the world, the last person will be found in China, and I've got this crazy notion that last person will be Ai Weiwei. Did you say in Muslim in Muslim belief? In Muslim belief, yeah, in Muslim belief. This is tradition. a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I'm not saying yeah because I knew, it, but China was often referenced. Yes, in a lot of Muslim texts, as this place of wisdom and mystery and mm-hmm. all kinds mm. of stuff. Yeah. So that's that's Ai Weiwei's one thousand years of joys and sorrows. So this this is his autobiography, then. Yes, that's right. Right. Okay. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and you're and you're, you're you've read a lot of books, uh, Edin. This is the best book you've ever read. One of the best books I've read in a long time, and one of the best books I've ever read ever. Whoa. Okay. All right. All right, so on that bombshell, uh, we come to the end of this week's episode and uh, only reminds me now to thank a special honoured guest, Na'a Murad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Edin Koo. Uh, perhaps if you if we te- give you a full tutorial on how to use Zoom, we could have you on again soon. You can have me on any time. I have someone to help me, but it seems <laughs> you have a preference for Pauline. So, you know, that's my fate these days, but I'll accept it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, for all we know, we may be face to face again soon. <laughs> who, yes, knows? Soon who, who knows? Who knows? Back to the studios. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you very much, and please join us next week for another exciting episode of a bit of culture here on BFM eighty nine point nine. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM eighty nine point nine, the business station.